Welcome to the Family Bible Journey. Whether you're a first-time listener, one of our regulars, or one of those who has committed to journaling with us through the Bible, thank you so much for listening and making us a part of your day. This is episode 40, season 1 of the Family Bible Journey Old Testament podcast. Today we're looking at Genesis chapter 49. The title of today's podcast is Patriarch and Prophet. And our key verse for the chapter is the first verse where Jacob calls his sons together and says, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. In our text, we see Jacob's last words to his sons. He's going to bless his sons before his earthly life ends. And this is a powerful chapter of the Bible because in these blessings, we are going to see that Jacob is every bit prophet as he is patriarch because many of the things that he's going to say about his sons and the tribes that these sons would become the fathers of is going to be absolutely true and proven out in many ways for the Old Testament scripture. And so this is one of those passages that as we're going through the later books of the Bible, it's kind of fun to come back here and see how God is fulfilling these prophecies that Jacob makes about his sons and the tribes that they would become throughout the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, Jacob lived about 1900 BC, that's 1,900 years before Christ. And the prophecies that he's going to make about these sons are going to be fulfilled, many of them in the Old Testament, but some not even until the New, because there are going to be some very sharp and crystal clear passages, prophecies about Christ that are going to be fulfilled. And for us as the people of God, this gives us great comfort and great hope because we see that these promises, these prophecies that Jacob makes, God keeps those promises. God is actually speaking to us through Jacob as a prophet and telling us that regardless of how crazy and messed up the world is and how silly the mistakes that his children are going to make are, that he is going to continue to prosper them despite their sin, despite their unbelief at times, and he is going to continue to use them as his instruments of grace at work in the world as he uses this family and the nation that is going to become Israel to bring salvation to bear in the person of Jesus Christ. And there are very many specific ways that's going to happen and characteristics of these sons that we're going to see playing out in the tribes over the next hundreds and even thousands of years. And that is something that we really want to make note of in this chapter as we go through it pretty much a verse by verse but highlighting some of the major prophecies the first section i want to know is verses five and seven and this is where levi and simeon are blessed together remember that these are the two who went to war when their sister was raped by another man and destroyed a city and it was their anger and their wrath that was the defining characteristics of their lives apparently and so this blessing contains a promise that these two tribes are going to be scattered in Israel. And we are going to see that specifically of the tribe of Levi, because during the Exodus, they are going to receive an inheritance that is going to be mixed in amongst the other tribes. All the other tribes are going to get their own allotments. They're going to have geographic boundaries. Now, this tribe of Levi is going to be the non-geographic tribe in Israel. And so they are not going to have any boundaries. They're going to be scattered and mixed in amongst the people of Israel. And that is going to be carried out when Moses gives each tribal allotment. When the attention turns to Judah, we see that Judah receives a very large and a very special blessing. Jacob refers to his son Judah as a lion's cub. In verse 10, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. I have a red Cairo, both on verses 9, 10, 
also in verse 11, the idea that the scepter is not going to depart from Judah is an acknowledgement that the Savior of all nations is going to come from the line of Judah. Now, we're going to talk about that when we get to Benjamin as well, because we also know that Jesus is a part of the family of David, which is of Benjamin's line. But how can these two be true at the same time? We're going to get there in just a moment. But I think in verse 11, too, is this idea of Judah. It says, he would bind his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. I've got a fat red Cairo on that one in a reference to Isaiah 63, which prophesies that the Savior, when he comes into Jerusalem, is going to be riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And so here, 1900 years before Jesus is even born, we have a reference to the Palm Sunday arrival into Jerusalem when Jesus is the Savior bearing the sins of the world is going to ride this foal of a donkey into Jerusalem as the king of God's people. And then in verse 12, we see a metaphorical reference that he is beautiful. In some places, Jesus has said, especially in the prophet Isaiah, that there was no majesty in him, nothing that would make us desire him. He wasn't a beautiful man. If anything, he was homely, not quite the depictions that we're used to seeing of Jesus as homely Jesus. We we usually see strong Jesus. Even Jesus on the cross often in crucifixes and churches is yoked Jesus. You know, he is he's buffed Jesus. But no, here we see that he is beautiful, but this idea of Jesus' beauty is not come from his physical appearance, but rather who he is as this son of Judah who's going to come to be the Savior of all nations. I also have a Cairo in verse 13 where it referenced Zebulun being by the shore of the sea. And we think about the passage from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1 where it talks about the Savior coming from the land of Naphtali, the land of Zebulun. And this passage from Isaiah chapter 9 is actually the Christmas Eve reading in many liturgical churches and different traditions, whether they be Lutheran or Catholic or Episcopal, that many Christians hear every Christmas Eve, especially in the high festival service where we celebrate the Savior. And so verses 13 and 21 both connect to that prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, which points us right to Christ. Joseph, of course, gets the favored blessing and the longest blessing beginning in verse 22 as the favored son of his father. And in this blessing, we see this promise of a shepherd, the stone of Israel. And I've got a Cairo next to that verse also. And Joseph here represents Christ who is going to come and conquer all of the enemies of God's people. And Joseph has been for us this wonderful type of Christ in many ways. He has saved his family. He has redeemed them. He has forgiven them. He has interceded for them with Pharaoh. And so Joseph again points us to Christ who is our shepherd and who is the mighty rock, the foundation we are told of God's people. And then we have the blessing to Benjamin which maybe sounds a little bit more like a curse than a blessing. It says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and in the evening dividing the spoil. Pretty violent, um, not a whole lot of blessing in that blessing, but we know when we get into the end of Judges that the tribe of Benjamin, because of their immorality, because of their ruthlessness, that they are going to be nearly wiped out by the time the judges and a civil war is going to happen at the end of judges and the other 11 tribes are going to go to war against benjamin and benjamin is going to be left with just a few hundred survivors and they're going to mourn the loss of this tribe of benjamin and come about some pretty creative ways to get these men who they all promised they wouldn't give their daughters to as wives wives but in that 
Benjamin as a tribe is going to be subsumed into the tribe of Judah. So Judah is going to end up being the southern portion, the southern kingdom of Israel. Benjamin being right in the midst of Judah is going to be basically consumed into Judah. So when we see in this passage that the promise of salvation, the promise of the Savior is tied both to the tribe of Judah and also the tribe of Benjamin, this actually makes sense to us in about 700 years when the judges, the period of the judges ends and Benjamin is wiped out and then becoming, in effect, a part of Judah. And by the time David's family is mentioned and Saul is made a king of Israel, and then again, David made a king of Israel, God chooses the tribe of Benjamin, the youngest tribe, the destroyed tribe, the tribe with the smallest number, the tribe with no more property, so to speak, as an inheritance because they've been wiped out and couldn't even take care of it. That tribe is going to be the one from whom the Savior is going to come. But that tribe is also at that point in time a part of the tribe of Judah. So it may not make sense to us yet how it is that the Savior is going to come from both Benjamin and Judah. But as we see with just a super quick overview of biblical history up at the time of the judges and the end of judges, that this is going to be made true so that Jesus is going to be both of the tribe of Benjamin and also of the tribe of Judah. Now, for those who are skeptical of the Bible and don't really believe in what it says, this is probably sounds like a lot of just reasoning to make it work. But for those of you who know the truth of God's word and the wisdom of God's word and, and know that God's word doesn't change because it doesn't have to change, it sure is fun and fascinating for us to see how God is going to use even some of the darkest chapters in the history of Israel to accomplish his purposes. And these are going to be played out as these blessings are fulfilled in the later pages of scripture. Having blessed his sons, Jacob, we are told he breathes his last. And we're going to see the death of the patriarchs. We're going to see the death of God's people often described as being gathered to their people. The chapter ends, it says, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And I think that is a wonderful way to look at physical death. We live in a culture that is consumed with the idea that we can either indefinitely postpone death or figure out a way that we as human beings can live forever in our current state. There are some people who are cryogenically freezing themselves or freezing their brains in the hopes that medical technology gets to the point where they can be physically raised from the dead or resuscitated or brought back to life. There are those who are looking for immortality and in fitness and in supplements and trying to eat the right stuff and drink the right stuff. And, and really, many of these efforts are an attempt to live forever. Now, I don't want to fault anyone for trying to be a good steward of their physical body or what God has given them, but many people just simply can't deal with the concept of death because if the only thing you have is this life, then death is the end. It is final. And if there's nothing left when you're done, then what is the point? And so many people are trying to find immortality and healthy living or by building monuments to themselves so they would not be forgotten. But we as God's people do not have to fear physical death because we know that there is a far worse death that awaits those who die apart from Christ. And that is an eternal separation from God in hell, which is, a, even though about a third of our people in our society today don't even believe in it anymore, is a real place where people will live forever separated from God and his love. And that's a terrible, terrible thought. But when Isaac dies, when Abraham dies, when Jacob dies, it isn't the end for them. 
They are taken immediately into God's presence. They are gathered to their people, as the text says. And that is an awesome way for us to think about physical death. It is the end of a life, a physical life, but it is certainly not the end of us because when we as God's people die, we will in that moment see God face to face and we will be gathered to his people. Our bodies will rest. They will be laid to rest and they will be still for a time. But when Christ returns, we know that our physical bodies will rise and we will be gathered to God's people, both body and soul, in a place where there is no more time, no more space, nothing to separate us. And that is the wonderful hope that Jacob died with. That is the hope that we as Christians live with even today. Have you decided to journal through the Bible, whether for yourself or a loved one? Please let us know through the contact form at familybiblejourney.com so that we can send you some encouragement and add you to our list of folks who have committed to journaling through the Bible with us. Our blessing for today. May you live your life with the blessing of Jacob, knowing that the Lord is your shepherd. And may this life end with you looking forward to the glorious resurrection and the reunion with all the saints who have gone before you, that you may be forever in God's presence, blessing and praising and thanking him for the goodness and love he has shown you, both now and forever. Amen.